Josh came and asked me to talk about hope because that's the, the first week of Advent is what we talk about. He, talked me, he asked me to talk about hope in the midst of uncertainty, which felt really appropriate for me because it seems like right now my uncertainties are even uncertain. I started thinking about that and processing sort of what that looks like for me right now. And this is going to seem unrelated, but I promise I'll bring it back to what we're talking about. Um, growing up, bringing the groceries in from the car was sort of like an event. I don't know if anybody has that. Like, Sometimes my sister and I would go grocery shopping. Sometimes it would be my mom or my dad. But when the car pulled into the driveway, every, it's like all hands on deck. And I realized that each of my siblings had sort of a different way or strategy of grocery bringing in. And so I have an older sister and a younger brother. Emma is my older sister. She's sort of, she's sort of dainty, not fragile, that's not the right word, but she, she did the normal like carry two bags at a time because I've got two hands, so it makes sense. My brother, somehow, whenever the car pulled into the driveway, he always had to use the bathroom. So, like, he would be MIA during the whole entire process of bringing the groceries in from the car. I don't know what he was doing in there, because, like, it doesn't take, generally, it doesn't take that long to go to the bathroom, but he would be gone. My strategy was, I'm going to grab as many bags as I possibly can at a time, because, A, I'm proving something to someone, I'm not sure what, or to whom I'm proving, maybe myself, I don't know. Two, it makes the whole process a lot more efficient, right? Grab, I'm going to put 10 bags on each arm, which is a lot when you're a kid, depending on what's in the bags, I guess. But I'm going to bring in as many as I possibly can at a time because I'm capable and it makes the process go faster. So I was thinking about this concept and have you ever carried bags you're sort of, you pick a whole bunch of bags up. Some of them, your hands are through the, the handles, but some of them are just sort of suspended in the, your grip, your iron grip that you have on the bags. Do you know what I'm talking about? And there's that chance that some of the bags are gonna fall through. Carrying bags like that is not always the best because you have a situation where there's bags in the middle and if you're by yourself, basically something's falling on the ground, right? Unless if you have a, a friend who can help you out and figure out like sort of which, because sometimes it's hard to trace the bag to the handle. Lately, it's felt sort of like I've got that situation where I'm carrying a ton of things at one time, but it wasn't, I wasn't the one who chose to, to pick up 20 bags at a time, someone just sort of said, here, and like handed me all of them, and I didn't get a chance to like figure out how I wanted to carry these things. And so I feel like I'm carrying all of these bags that have different things in them, different weights, and something is bound to fall through the cracks. Um, I feel like I'm carrying the weight of feeling insufficient, um, like I don't know what I'm doing with my life. It's a post-graduation problem, I think, just generally. Um, the, the weight of needing to be a good sister, 
a good daughter, a good granddaughter even, because I live with my grandfather, um, the weight of relationships that sort of feel like they're crumbling at the foundation, um, and then the weight of trying to do some damage control on those relationships because, A, I'm stubborn and I don't like to let things go easily, and I'm determined to maintain relationships, but also because they're relationships that I believe in and believe are good things. Um, and then also the weight of feeling like I'm not seeking God the way that I should, should be seeking him. So it's like I'm holding all of these things in my hands, and I know that something is going to drop on the floor. I just don't know what it is or the consequences of that. So like you drop a bag that has a can of beans in it, if that's something you like. Not much is going to happen to that can of beans. You drop a bag that has a gallon of milk in it, you're, <laughs> that's getting all over everything. Fun side tangent. We, we, were, we used to have milk at every, this is completely unrelated, but you're welcome. Um, we used to have milk at every meal, and there was always somebody who spilled a glass of milk at the table. One time we ran out of milk mid-meal. I don't know why we drank so much milk, but we ran out. And my brother got up, to get a new gallon out of the fridge. We were like that family who bought four gallons of milk at a time. And my brother decided to throw the whole gallon of milk up in the air, and it, he didn't catch it, and it went all over everything. We like to make fun of him about that still. Totally unrelated. Um, so it feels like I'm holding all of these things, and eventually something is going to drop, and I don't necessarily have control over what thing that is, I feel like I didn't even choose to carry this in the first place. And so all of that sometimes makes it harder to seek God um, and to seek it, him to my full capability. And so there's this song that I've been listening to lately. It's from a group called Penny and Sparrow. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Um, and it's sort of written from God's perspective and I have just a little tidbit. Um, I guess I'll sing a little bit of it for you. <clears throat> so it's, When you hear nothing and you feel less Your struggle is pretty Just sit still and know that I know what is best And you will hear me start screaming And you'll know me by my voice and I won't ever stop yelling and so it's sort of like when you hear nothing and you feel less sort of like being in the middle of I don't know what's going on I don't know what God is doing in my life right now um there's still beauty in that struggle um so just sit still and know that I know what is best sit still and know that there's still this like undercurrent of something bigger is going on here. You might not understand what that means or what it is or what it will turn out to be, but it's still there. And then it says, and you will hear me start screaming and you'll know me by my voice and I won't ever stop yelling. So even in those situations when it feels like things are crumbling at the foundation, um, they don't work out how I want them to or don't seem like they're going to work out how I want them to. There's still hope in that. 
there's something bigger at work. And God is still present even when I have no clue what's going on. And often everybody else can tell that I have no clue what's going on. And so the end of that song just being, you'll hear me start screaming and you'll know me by my voice. I won't ever stop yelling. It's God's relentless pursuit of my fickle heart and mind and my fickle will to, to follow him. So thanks, Tessa. Tessa's awesome. Um, so I get to talk about fear tonight and the hope that comes out of that. And it's crazy because the past couple of weeks have been, fear has been a um, kind of an overlapping theme. And I was waiting to write something because you guys know that I write and stuff. I was waiting to write something about it and waiting for a chance to talk about it. And as I was standing there, God just whispers to me, he goes, yeah, right now. I was like, never ceases to blow my mind. So I am terrified of failure. I've been playing sports pretty much since I could walk. And um, as a college athlete, there's a lot of stress that can come with trying to perform for your coaches and constantly trying to look at stats and ignore them at the same time and see how you're doing against your teammates and against the people you play against. And I've, I've had this constant gripping fear um, that's actually inhibited my performance. I'm terrified of being alone. Um, and that fear uh, all throughout high school really um, forced me to look for friends and to bounce around from friend groups to figure out who I could be myself around who I could hang out with that would, uh, the people that would accept me for, for who I am. And that fear of being alone caused me to do things um, that I regret. I was afraid when the drugs and alcohol weren't enough to make friends and that those things that I turned to to try to fill gaps would ultimately just leave me sitting at home by myself. Um, and I was afraid when my girlfriend at the time wasn't enough to satisfy me and, and give me the things that I wanted. And so these things that I turned to actually just, out of fear, actually just made it worse. Um, and so there's just been this constant theme of inadequacy, of not being able to hit the mark, of not being able to measure up and be all that I'm supposed to be out of my own will. And sometimes it's funny, I'm even afraid of the dark, which is, which is pretty silly, but I think it's the unknown that that, that fear comes from. And it's interesting because I, I met Jesus in the ninth grade, and all this stuff seemed to happen afterwards. And I was kind of confused, and I, was, and I was afraid because I was wondering, you know, while I, I started a relationship with him, I, I didn't quite get it, and I was afraid that, that he wasn't there. And so now, while I lead in young life and I write poems and I say things and I know things in my mind and I know Bible verses, my fear now is that I don't actually believe those things. My fear now is that while I know all these things and I tell people to follow Jesus, I don't follow him myself sometimes. And that's it's terrifying. Um, 
And that, that kind of, that forces me to try to hand in this, this spiritual resume, these list of things that I've composed um, that say, okay, these things are good and these things are bad. Hopefully, hopefully together I can, I can hand them to God saying, oh, please, um, hopefully this is good enough. Hopefully you can accept me and love me for these things that I've, that I've done. But in the midst of all these fears, one of the craziest things to, that I think about is that he is still pleased with me and the work that I'm doing, even though I'm often terrified. That even though I still fail, he still chooses to use me. The artist still chooses to use a broken, splintered paintbrush, one that doesn't always paint straight, one that doesn't always fill in the lines correctly, but one that he still chooses to use anyway. He's seen where I've been. He's seen the things that I've done, the things that I've said, the actions that I've committed. And he still loves me. First uh, John chapter 4, it's a pretty, pretty common verse. It says, perfect love casts out fear because fear deals with punishment. And so I was trying to hand in this spiritual resume, walking with Jesus, trying to avoid punishment instead of just walking in the free grace that he had given me. And so as I currently still struggle with all of these things, I have to look to the promises that God has clearly laid out for me that sometimes I fail to see. So I'm terrified of failing in sports, of, of not measuring up, of physically failing and, and coming up short. But my hope is that I'm already a champion in his eyes and that will never change. I'm terrified of being alone of not having people that are willing to love me for who I am and, and having people that care about me, which is silly because I'm talking to all those people right now. Um, but my hope in that fear is that God chooses to hold on to me even when I let go. Even when I turn my face away, turn my chair the other way, he is still willing and waiting for me. And I'm afraid of not measuring up in that fear of not being good enough, not knowing enough, not saying enough, not doing enough, not memorizing enough Bible verses, not telling enough people about Jesus, not writing enough poems, not doing enough contact work. My hope comes from the fact that Jesus doesn't want what I have. He doesn't want my actions. He doesn't want my words. He doesn't want anything that I have to offer because he doesn't need that. My hope is the fact that he just wants me. Thank you, Tessa and Tim. Um, I speak from personal experience when I say it can be a little bit intimidating to do a testimony because you're kind of leaving a piece of yourself out there. And so I appreciate both of you for sharing. I'll be speaking tonight on hope in the midst of suffering and pain and loss. And, um, and some of you have gone well before me on that journey. And, uh, but this is my story. I was 11 years old the first time that someone close to me died. It was in the spring of my sixth grade year on the dawn of an awkward adolescence and the death of my grandfather marked, in some ways, without sounding dramatic, the end of my childhood. It's a loss that I'll always feel and one that has been re revisited in the loss of, um, of loved ones ever since. 
Grief, pain, and loss come in many forms. They can bring out the best and the worst in people. They're universal, and no one gets to pass them by. They make us question God, his motives, his timing, and his sovereignty. Besides that, it makes us question if he's still worthy of hope. When all that is within us screams that it's no longer worth it, or that this Christian thing doesn't work, or that prayer is no, no longer more than a foolish exercise that at best makes us feel better and at worst doesn't work. Most of us here have lived long enough to experience life and to feel the doubts and fears rise within our hearts, to feel the foundation that we've always stood on slip just a little. Um, just wanted to, as an example, remember the classic hit, The Princess Bride. You may remember the scene where Wesley is being tortured in the pit of despair, and he dies at the hand of the evil Prince Humperdinck, who will end up getting the girl. As you know, the evil prince is not supposed to get the girl, and the young grandson, played by Fred Savage, interrupts the reading of the story by blurting out, wait, what did Fezzik mean? He's dead. I mean, he didn't mean dead. Wesley's only faking, right? Who gets Humperdinck? Who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end, somebody's got to do it. Is it Inigo? Who? This simply wasn't the ending that the grandson saw coming. His foundation of belief was slipping. Back to a real-world example, the disciples felt it too. Peter surely felt it when he watched this man Jesus, for whom he'd given up family and career, to whom he dedicated three years of his life. This man who was supposed to reign and rule and rise up to defeat Roman oppression. That same man was led away in shame and defeat, bloodied and bruised. You can bet that Peter felt it. Where was his king? What about his kingdom? When does he step from the shadows and defeat the bad guys? Surely he can't be crucified. This isn't how the story goes. In my story and in the stories of some precious loved ones, I too have cried out with a desperate, but this isn't how the story goes. I can't see how the script that's unfolding before me can possibly mesh with what I'm reading in my Bible or hearing from my friends or seeing plastered by well-meaning people on Facebook. Loss, disillusion, and pain have a way of bringing you face to face with some really tough questions. Questions that are teeming with doubt and disappointment. Questions that wonder if hope is a reasonable choice any longer. God blessed me richly with some precious friends and we walked a journey together, a journey where we asked ourselves and each other things like, is God still good when life isn't? Is God still good and mighty and sovereign in the midst of the second miscarriage, the child wandering from her faith, the failed marriage, the adoption that doesn't go as planned, or the dreaded diagnosis? Is he still good when the wait for fulfillment of his promises has far exceeded a reasonable time frame and doubt has been a constant companion? What about when everything, and sometimes everyone, tells you that you must have heard him wrong? I don't have any easy answers in the midst of that walk when hope feels so elusive. I know that he is real and true and that his heart for you is love. I know that he won't leave you ever. His work is always a beautiful thing, and his goal is restoration. 
He draws you in the ugly, raw moments. It's when intentionally focusing my heart, mind, and prayers on these truths, that hope, the Bible calls it that anchor for the soul, begins to rise. My heart's cry in these moments is from the Psalms because they so beautifully reflect the condition of man and the heart of God. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. From Psalm 25, 4-5. Jim read that earlier. And from Psalm 130, 5-7, because I just love how this is worded. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for morning. More than watchmen wait for morning. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Amen.